0: great to have you here with us as well. I want to start by telling you about the day that I was arrested. So uh, I was 19 years old at the time. I was in the first year of university. Handsome of you were arrested in your first year at university. Come on, let's see those. Okay. Um, Now, the only thing you really need to know about me back in those days uh, when I was a 19-year-old at university was that I had very long hair. I'm not just talking about, like, sort of a little bit longer than you see now, like, I need to get a little bit of a haircut. I'm talking about, like, seriously long hair. I had hair that kind of came down to, like, the middle of your back, you know, ponytail. I'd shave it underneath. I wore black all the time from head to toe. I was into death metal music, right? This was before I got saved, just want to say, all right? But I was into this, like, crazy music. I was, like, wearing black all the time, and I had super long hair. I thought I was super cool. Now, the problem was i wasn't cool the problem was i went to a university called durham in the northeast of england and durham is a small university town um, but there's a bit of an issue number one the surrounding area of durham is kind of like a working class north of england kind of surrounding area very proud of its industry and most of the men within the working class there never would have long hair in fact they look at long-haired people as weirdos right Likewise, at my university, it was kind of like this middle to upper class university where a lot of the kids that were studying there had gone to public schools in the UK. And if you were a guy that went to public school in the UK, you did not have long hair tied in your ponytail down the middle of your back wearing black all day. So basically, I stood out in terms of who I was at Durham, like, like completely, right? So much so that by the end of the first year, I was thinking about cutting my hair just so that I could fit in a little bit better. Now, on this one particular day that I got arrested, I was walking down this long road that goes from the top of where I was living at the time to the bottom of Durham, where my university lecture hall was. And I'm walking down uh, this road, and on the other side of the road, about 100 yards away, a policeman is walking up in the opposite direction. And as the policeman's walking up, he gazes over and he sees me coming down on the other side of the road. And I immediately, I, I had this sense, you know, the spider sense, there's a policeman staring at you, and suddenly you don't feel like 100% comfortable anymore. Like, you're like, what is wrong? Have I done something? What's, what's the problem here? And the officer crosses over onto my side of the street, walks right up to me, and he comes straight up to me, and this was his opening words. He says, you have long hair. And I'm like... Wow, you're you're perceptive here today, officer, right? I'm like, yes, I do. He's like, you have no idea how happy I am to meet you. I'm like, oh, that's cool. He's like, I've been searching over the whole of Durham to find men with long hair. Do you know how hard it is to find men with long hair in Durham? I'm like, yes, I do, because I have never seen one. And he's like, I finally found you. And I'm wondering, would you come with me and be a part of a police lineup at the police station? because it turned out that they had arrested somebody who had long hair, and they were looking for five other men of about the same age, about the same height, with long hair, to be a part of the lineup. I was like, no, I don't wanna do that. And he's like, we'll pay you. I'm like, where do I sign? I'm a student, right? Like- <laughs> I'm like, where, I'll I'll, I'll go. So the next day, I'm down there at the police station. I walk into the little side room, and I walk into this room, and lo and behold, there's five other men in that room with long hair. Immediately, we're like best friends. It's like, where have you been all my life? We're like swapping shampoo techniques and everything. Like, it's it's awesome. We're like the best friends straight away. And, and the police officer from the other day comes in. He's like, right, it's very simple, very easy. We're gonna give you a number. You're gonna walk into the room here on the left, and you'll see some places on the floor. You're gonna line up, and you're gonna hold your number, and you're just gonna look forwards into the mirror that's gonna be in front of you. Now, when you're standing there, we're gonna bring in this guy. We're gonna bring him in. He's gonna then join you in that lineup, and then the light will come come on and it will blind you in your face and you'll just see the mirror in front of you, but it's one way mirrored glass and there's the witness behind the mirror. And once you're standing there, the lights are on and he's in place, then I just want you to do whatever the voice over the intercom tells you to do. Cool, we're like easiest money we've ever made, right? So we get given our numbers, we go into the room and and I'm standing there, there's one person here, the second person, there's me here, number three, there was an empty spot in number four, and then there was five and six. And as we're standing there, the door opens and this guy walks in. Now, I don't know what a criminal looks like, but this guy looked like a criminal. Are you with me? Like, I don't know what he had done, but it was obvious to me that he was guilty. Right. I mean, he walked in and all of us were like, we don't look anything like this guy. Like we might have long hair, but this guy is guilty and we're super sweet and innocent. Right. So he comes and he stands right next to me and immediately I'm sensing just the evil from this man. Right. He's standing there and we're all standing there. We've all got our numbers. We're all looking up and the lights come on. There we go. We've started. And it's funny, right, because if you're staring forward and you only have a mirror, you don't stare at yourself. So the five of us are all staring at this guy right here in the mirror, right? Like we're just looking at him, eyes fixed, right? So we're standing there, as he's standing there in that position, number four, and and suddenly the the voice comes on in the intercom system. Number four, would you please stand forward? And we're all like, like we can't do anything, but I know that the five of us are all kind of (laughs) like, you know you've, you know anyway the guy next to me doesn't move like he's just standing there I'm like, man, this guy is tough, you know? Number four, the voice comes again on the intercom system. Would you please stand forward? And I mean, he just stands there. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't even move, doesn't even twitch. And we're all standing there, kind of like beginning to look a little confused and staring in the mirror at him. Number four, would you please stand forward? And we're like, come on, guy, number four, stand forward. Number, number four! And I suddenly realized I'm holding number four and I stood in the wrong place in number three. And I'm standing there and I'm thinking, hang on a sec. Whoever is behind there has just called me out. He's so obviously guilty, but I'm the one. And again, number four, would you please stand forward? And I can tell this guy standing there looking at me in the mirror like, you can help me get off right now. Stand forward, you know. I stand forward. Okay, honest story, this is what happens. As I stand forward, automatically something goes through my mind. Here's what I think, I go, did I really do it? <laughs> like, where was I on October 25th? Do you know what I mean? Like, maybe I, maybe I did it and I completely forgot about it. What is the crime that maybe I had? And I literally began to absorb the identity that the witness behind the mirror was saying about me. For whatever reason, they thought I looked like the person who had done it. And I stepped forward and I was like, perhaps I actually did. I allowed just the pressure of that moment and everything kind of cloud my mind. And I began to feel really guilty about something that I didn't know that maybe I had done. Then the thing says, okay, stand back. So I stood back. Then the lights went off. That was it. The lights went off. The door opens. They come. They take the guy away. And then a police officer comes into the room and arrests me. Okay, I'm embellishing a little bit about that part. He didn't actually come in and arrest me. But he did come in and say, sir, we need to take you to this room over here, and we need to interview and find out where were you on October 25th, and do you actually have an alibi for your presence? Now, I hadn't done it. I wasn't in the place. I had an alibi. It was all code. So, guys, just trust me, I didn't do whatever it was, okay? But when I left that place that day, here's the thought processes that were going around my mind. I realized how easy it was for someone to give me an identity and for me to absorb and take on that identity. Like it was so easy to have somebody's voice that I didn't even know begin to shape what I actually thought about myself. Did I really do it? And I realized that our identity is so tentative that our identity can be so molded and shaped by other people's perspective. And as I left it that day, I was beginning to ask myself some new questions. Like what actually does form our identity? Like, Like who is it that is actually shaping and telling us who we are? Because so often it's the external voice from us that is shaping and telling us who we are. Years later, as I've come to faith, I've asked those questions in a Christian way. Like, I know my identity should be in Christ Jesus, I know it should be in the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but I also recognize, like that day, there are many voices that come to me from social media, from movies, from music, from from politicians, from from influential people in society, from even well-meaning friends that are telling me how I should live, how I should be shaped, who I should be, and I realize that I so often lift into the voices out there rather than the voice that the Holy Spirit has put in here. And I end up shaping much of my life more around the external voice of others rather than the internal voice of God. And I realize now that I'm asking other questions about my identity. I'm asking questions like this, like what brokenness is there in my identity? recognizing that other voices have a profound impact. What voices are there in my identity that need to be uprooted and changed? Like, what are the things that the Holy Spirit wants to re-establish in me so that my identity is more rooted in the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Are you with me? Now, this is exactly what was on Paul's heart as he opens his letter to the church in Philippi. He wants to through his opening 11 verses, and we're gonna look at the first six today, he wants to reestablish for his church right at the start, how they should think about themselves and about God. Because he realizes that their identity has been shaken recently. You remember last week, if you were here as part of our opening message, and if you weren't, I encourage you to go online and check it out. But last week, I mentioned two critical things about the church in Philippi. First of all, he told us that they were a church under great persecution. The Gospel of Caesar and the Gospel of Jesus had clashed. And Paul knew that many of them there were struggling with, do I honor Caesar or do I honor God? And if those things come into conflict, what do I do? And because of that, the church itself had become under persecution. There was heavy persecution of the church in Philippi. The second thing about the church there is their division amongst themselves. I said last week that as as the persecution increased, the church was beginning to kind of head a little bit like this. There were different factions that were beginning to grow up in the church, different people with different perspectives and opinions, and the church was not unified together, it was beginning to become more divided. And, and Paul understood as he's writing to the church, as he's opening the letter, he knows that their identity has been shaken by the persecution as well as by the divisions amongst themselves. And he realizes some things need to be uprooted and some things need to be firmly established. The church needs to understand who they truly are. So his opening prayer in the book is a prayer to reestablish the roots of their identity. You with me so far? Now, Here's why this is important. Because I, I don't know about you, but I, I know me, and I know that I recognize the inward door that I want to open to the Holy Spirit, like we sung about during our worship time, needs to open up because I do recognize some brokenness in me. I do recognize some areas where my identity is not as it should be. And I wonder if that's resonating with anyone else in this room, and if it is, that my prayer for us, as Paul's prayer was for his church, that I pray for you today as we open up this passage of scriptures, that God would begin to speak about your identity afresh and establish in you some new, wonderful, beautiful things. Can we pray? Father, I just ask that you would open this word to us this morning. We thank you that Paul had a passion for the church, a passion for his people, and that he taught us much about prayer. Lord, as we think about what it is to pray as a church together today, in our identity in you, would you come and speak to us in Jesus' name, and says. Let me read to you the first six verses of Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the ta- saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from our God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy, Because of our partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus who writes to the church and immediately he, he wants to, after he's introduced himself and he's addressed them and said grace and peace over them, from verse three and four, he immediately brings an intimacy to them in this letter. He says, I thank God for you. He says, I'm always remembering you in my prayers. I I pray for all of you. There's a great joy in me as I pray. It's like Paul is saying, man, I am so intimately, personally loving towards you. I mean, I I can't help but thank God, rejoice for you, remember you, pray for you all the time. Paul is being very intimate and very direct. Now, Now, you have to remember, Paul is writing this from a place of being in chains in prison. In other words, Paul is writing this not when everything is going great for Paul. And I don't know about you and I, but when things are not going great for me and somebody says, what's your prayer life like? I'm like, oh man, I need you to pray for me. Things are hard for me. Things are going bad. Oh, I'm in chains for the gospel. Would you pray, church, that God would break the... Paul doesn't do that. I I want you to see this. When he thinks about prayer, he thinks about praying for others. He writes to them, even though he's in a really hard situation and he celebrates and he says, I'm praying for you always and I have great joy in my heart and I just thank God that you're alive and that you're committed and that you're together in this church. And it's a beautiful thing. Paul is modeling something for us. He's showing the church a new way to pray. And I wonder if the Holy Spirit came and did an audit of your prayer life, what might emerge? If you're anything like me, your prayer life is probably predominantly about you and maybe your immediate family, the things that really matter. It's like a laundry list of all the stuff that you might want God to do in your life. Now, don't get me wrong, that kind of prayer is great. It's important, it's throughout the Bible. We should pray for one another. We should pray for ourselves, that's absolutely fine. But Paul is saying, if you really, truly want to be the church together, you need to shift your prayer life from being just about a laundry list of all the things that you want God to do for you, and begin to shift it towards what it means to actually thank God for one another. He's saying, I don't just do these things for you. I'm modeling how you should be for each other. You should thank God for one another. You you should find joy when you think about each other. You should actually want the blessings and the welfare of one another. And I think one of the reasons why Paul is starting his prayer with this is that he's trying to say something to them about their division and their disunity. Come on, church, note this. It's so hard to remain hateful and hardened towards those that you genuinely are thanking God for, towards those that you genuinely want God to give His blessings for their welfare and their growth. It's really hard to stay divided to those that you genuinely, out of joy, want the best for them. Are you, are you with me? But here's a church where they were struggling. They were heading in this direction. They were probably, it was probably difficult for them at times to be in the same room as one another. And Paul's saying, shift your prayer life away from yourself towards the genuine affection for the other. If you want to break dividing walls, move in the opposite spirit to what those walls are saying to you. Say, Lord, even though I find this person difficult, Lord, even though they've hurt me, Father, I am so grateful you created them. And I know, Lord, that you're doing something in them. And Father, I pray a blessing over them. Could you imagine how that might revolutionize a broken church if people truly prayed that way? A few years ago, there was a person here at the Vine who caused me a lot of personal anxiety, stress, emotional pain. And I was walking with this person over a season. and It was incredibly difficult. And I, I felt a darkness in me towards that person. I struggled to be a Christian towards them, let alone a pastor towards them. Are you with me? And right in the midst of that season, God came and said, Andrew, I want you to thank God for them. I'm like, no way. Like, there's no way I'm gonna thank God for this person. I want to get this person. You know, I want to do a lot of things for this person, but not to thank you for them, right? He's like, I want you to thank God for them, and not just thank God for them, but I also want you to pray my blessings over them. I've got so much I want to do in them, so much I want to give them. Would you partner with me in praying thanksgiving and blessing over them? And I tell you, it was not easy. I rebelled against the obedience instruction of the Lord many times in that area. But as I began to say, Lord, okay, Lord, day one, it was like, Lord, thank you for them, just bless them. <laughs> day two was better, day three, day five, day 20, Lord, I, I, I sensed something in my spirit. for this. And I began to pray almost daily for this person. I, and I felt something happen in me. I don't know whatever happened in them, but I know something happened in me. You know, sometimes when God moves mountains, they're not in the people we're praying for, they're actually moved in us. And I felt like this shift and this change in who I was, and I felt myself more gracious and loving and kind, and my interactions with this person also changed, because, not because, again, they changed particularly, or the situation changed particularly, but because something inside of me shifted. A dividing wall came down because I was thankful and I was seeking the welfare of the one that I was at amnity against. Are you with me? You do this and it's a supernatural, prophetic breaking down of the walls, Oh, what church might look like if it did more of that. Paul then goes on in verse 5 and he says, "'Cause you are partnering together. I thank God for our partnership in the Gospel. This is a beautiful word, this partnership in the Greek. It's the same root word as koinonia, which is fellowship. This is Paul saying about fellowship. But this particular word actually emphasizes more the working together with another, which is amazing because Paul's essentially saying that true fellowship, true koinonia is not just meeting together, it is also working together. That actually committing ourselves to work together towards a shared vision is as much on God's heart when he talks about fellowship as it is for us just to come together and know each other and enjoy being in relationship with one another. So so Paul, fellowship, meeting, also had a purpose. And remember, Paul is saying there's a partnership we take place with in the gospel. And he's thanking them for their partnership because they, as a church, had partnered with him in his gospel. They had actually financially provided for him. They had sent this guy, one of the leaders from the church called Ephroditus, to come and minister to him whilst he was in prison. The church in Philippi had been very generous towards Paul. He says there's a partnership that's happening here. But he's not just thanking them for the finance and for the the material support he had received. He's, again, modeling what prayer might look like. And he's like, here's how you pray for one another, that you're not just thankful for each other. You're not just wanting the best and pray blessing on each other. But there is a prayer that you would work well together for the gospel. Because there is something that the gospel is trying to do in this time. There's a work of the gospel, God's spirit and presence. This is an alternative society planted in the wider society. You're not just a holy huddle on a Sunday, Paul is saying to the church. When you come together, it's also not just to meet together, but it's to roll up your sleeves and say, what is it that we are to do together with a shared vision and a shared passion for the gospel in our city? Because there's lots of people out there that need to know Jesus and if all we ever do under these beautiful lights and in this beautiful building is to sing praise songs but we never actually then go out and reach out with the gospel paul would say that's not fellowship this is an important word for us in our time here in hong kong in this season because i don't know about you man but i love the church right it's kind of my job but i love it i really do and, and I, I have survived in the last two, three years here in Hong Kong because I get to come and do this with you. I mean, I mean the, the times of restoration and healing, times where the week has been so hard for me that I just fall over the precipice of the door on the Sunday and I'm like, thank God I can shut the world out for 90 minutes and just spend time with people I love. Right, are you with me? Like, it's great that the church is a healing hospital for us. It's great that the church is available for us in that way. It should be always that way. But here's the problem. In times of persecution, in times of hardship, in times of suffering, it's very easy for the church to be tempted to only fellowship in meeting together and completely forget about the outreach that it has been called to do. You see, in hard and overwhelming times, for, for a church, we must remember that the church is not just a place to meet together. It's not just a place of respite. It is also a place of outreach. Are you with me, everyone? And and as as we button that down in our thinking and in our identity, when we pray thanksgiving for one another, when we pray a blessing over one another, it's not just so that we can have reconciled relationships in this space right now. It's so that in partnership together, we can work better together. You see, Paul wants them reconciled. He wants their dividing walls broken down, not just so that they can hug each other more, but so that they can be a more effective witness of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ in society around them. Because if the world looks in on the messiness of this with all our cultures and backgrounds and all the fact that we have different political views and all of those things. If the world looks in on this and sees us loving each other, working together, praying together, breaking on dividing walls. And then actually as one unit moving out with hope and joy to the world, the world will see that and go, that's different. There's something tremendously exciting in that. So Paul invites the church to also pray about their partnership with one another in the gospel. Could you imagine what it would be like to be a church that prayed like that? Now, we get to the really meaty part, the bit that I'm really excited about, are you ready? Verse six, he says this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus. This is Paul shifting now to talk about their identity. And the reality that their identity was being shaken. And he wants to speak into the very root of who they are and the very root of the kind of God that they should believe in. Let me preach on this for a second by by framing it like this. I I, I think we're living in a time and in a society and a community right now in the world that has major commitment issues. I don't know if you've felt like this yourself, but I think we're living in a time where we're so used to scrolling so quickly through social media onto the next fix, onto the next fix, the next video, the next photo, the next thing that's happening, that we're beginning to take that and applying it into the jobs that we have, the relationships that we have, the marriages that we have. And we're becoming a society that is letting go of commitment, letting go of standing on our word and actually our own personal selfish desires are taking precedent over the word that we might have given to someone. Because we're so used to finding the next thing that satisfies, that we now, even in our external world, are desperately often looking for the next thing that satisfies. And when we're in a relationship, when we're in a workplace, and things get a little tense, things get a little difficult, maybe there's a a little bump in the road, we're very quick at the moment to just let go of that thing and move on to the next thing. See, we have a commitment issue, I believe, because we have a perspective issue. You see, we're so quick to give up on something because we so often judge that thing based on its present reality rather than its future finish. We we, we judge it on all of the stuff that's happening in that moment rather than being able to stand back and see that there's a trajectory of this thing that is actually going somewhere else. We judge one another because of the place in the journey that we're in rather than actually looking that we're actually on a journey. We, we judge each other by what we see in front of us, rather than in the grander picture of what the Holy Spirit might be doing within us. And when that happens, we find ourselves letting go of our commitments, just giving up on stuff, just quickly. And I think one of the reasons we do it is because we want to avoid suffering and hardship. Like, 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 if this thing we're doing right here, if that's going to be hard, man, I don't know if I want anything hard. It's already hard enough to live. I don't know if I want extra hardness. I'm just going to let that one go. And, and I think as Christians, we have a real dangerous thing that we do. I think we actually over spiritualize things sometimes. And we kind of go, man, I got into this because I thought God called me into it. And oh, yeah, he gave me those confirming signs and those confirming words. And I started it. But, you know, it got really hard. And I realized that it was hard because God wasn't in it anymore. And we suddenly over-spiritualize our struggles and our suffering with the reality that God must not be there. God's lifted His grace. God's not involved in this anymore. So, well, I'll go and do the next thing, when actually God's Word is firm and true. He's a faithful God. So Paul writes to the church, a church that I think was deeply struggling with this, and he begins to speak into them. He says, don't judge something on what it looks like right now. You need to realize that the Holy Spirit is moving everything towards this glorious day when Christ will return, and if God started it, He will be in it, and He will complete it. Let me give you a sense of this by showing you a photograph. This photograph was taken on the 23rd of December, 1997. That's me, by the way, in the photograph. Can you see the long hair? Look at this, long hair, I, like, I don't know what my sideburns are doing, but they're getting real long there. Those glasses, I think I might've borrowed them from my dad. I don't know. Those glasses are not cool. I'm wearing this really baggy suit. This is like 90s ugliness right there on a photo for you. Here's the thing. This is my engagement night. And I am so, so glad that my wife, Christine, did not decide to answer my question to her, will you marry me based on how I looked in that moment. I am so glad that she saw that there was a better future ahead than what was happening right now. I'm so glad that she knew I was like a fine wine, that I would get better ahead. I'm so glad that she didn't look at that hair and look at those sideburns, but she looked at the character and the integrity and the future. And she said, I want to be a part of that because the trajectory where it's going is good, even if right now you look like this. And I think God is, through Paul speaking to the church in Philippi, a church under great persecution. A church under division within them. And Paul understands that if we're giving up on one another, the next phase is that we start to give up on God. And so when God doesn't answer that prayer in the time we thought, he's not faithful. When God doesn't act in the way we want him to do, I guess he's not faithful. I think the church in Philippi was looking at Paul... And they were seeing that the one that they loved, their mentor, their pastor, the one that was so much more spiritual than Noah ever be, he was in prison. And they're thinking, if that's my future in the gospel, I don't know if this thing was such a great idea. And Paul writes them and he says, this is where our confidence is. This is where our identity gets formed. This is in who we are. We do not judge based on what we see right now. We do not allow the persecution. We do not allow the division to begin to define who we are right now. Instead, we recognize that if God started this in the beginning, if His presence, if He planted it, if He renewed it, if He was the one who spoke into it, then no matter what might happen, God will carry it through on order so that it would be completed on the day of his glorious return he jumps forward to to what he's going to say in verse 10 where he says on that day we will be pure and blameless before the lord and he's saying get a pure and blameless future vision for the brokenness of the current that's how you should pray we should be able to give each other much more grace give each other much more release than the reality of what we're seeing he said there's a good work in you Don't forget it. No matter how hard the situation might be, there's a good work in you. When Paul speaks of good works, he's speaking here predominantly of two things. The good work of their conversion through the Holy Spirit in Jesus, the gospel. He's speaking about that moment when they gave their life to Jesus. He said that moment didn't happen because you did it. It happened because God started it in you. It's a good work. And then he's talking about the ongoing sanctification process that would lead them to the time when Jesus comes back, this ongoing work of renewal where we give up our spirit, we give our sin to him, we repent and we come before him, and we do all of that kind of work. All of that is part of this other good work that he sustains in us as he brings us to the time when he'll return to judge the world, and we'll be before him in a place of pureness and blamelessness, and it's wonderful. And Paul's saying, get this perspective when you pray. It's a good work. Notice, he doesn't say it's an easy work. He doesn't say even it's a fun work. He doesn't even say it's a work that's going to be a blessing to all your needs and your wants and your desires. But he says it's an eternal work of good in you. And that good work sometimes requires hard work on our part. It sometimes requires repentance as much as it requires prayers for blessing sometimes requires us to give up things rather than hold on to the brokenness. Sometimes it requires us to have that conversation, to humble ourselves, to to say, uh, will you forgive me? Sometimes the work that is good in God's eyes requires something that might be tough in ours. But just because it's tough doesn't mean God has given up. That's what he's saying to the church. It might be hard at times, but it's a good work. And here's the thing. (laughs) If God started it, you can take two things to the bank. It's a good work and it will be completed. Imagine what it would mean to pray like that. Which is exactly why Paul then brings it all the way back to what he started with, division amongst them. And he says, man, if God starts it, if God's gonna be there every step of the way, if God's gonna complete it, then you need to get that prayerful perspective in your mind as you are trying to be the body of Christ together. See. This is me, not Paul, but I think there is so much division and disunity in the church because we, we have a, a tendency in us to judge one another, not on the confidence of how we're going to appear on that glorious day when Christ returns, but on the reality of our human brokenness in the present along the way, that's what we judge. We look upon one another, and we hurt one another, and we do things, and we're sinful as human beings, and we look at that and we say, that person's never going to amount to anything, I don't even know that person's a Christian, and we judge one another, and that judgment of our present reality of our sin is what causes the deeper divisions amongst us, and Paul says, you want to know how to pray, pray that you are thankful for every person within your community of faith, pray that God will bless each person, pray that you'll be able to partner better for the gospel, being confident of this, that if God has started a good work in that person, if God has their hand on them, then He will be with them every step of the way. And they're not going to look perfect. They're still going to upset you. They're going to do things that are going to hurt you. But He is in it. He will bring them to a place of pureness and blamelessness on the return of Christ Jesus. It is not your place to judge. It is your place to love. That's what church looks like, Paul is saying. You want to know how to pray? Pray like that. Ain't that beautiful? And as we lean into praying like that, we might then begin to have this release in us that we are actually an alternative society that doesn't just say it loves, but it truly does. doesn't just say that we like to come together, but we truly do love to come together. doesn't just say that we're working together for the gospel, but we're actually working together for the gospel because our identity is not rooted in our situation. It's not rooted in the suffering. It's not rooted in the things that are happening to us and those things causing us, like that moment for me to go, am I really that person? Instead, our identity is rooted on a God. We are confident of this God, that if he starts it, it's good and he will finish it. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Can we stand together? I wanna read a prayer over us. Uh, We're going to read it together, actually, Uh, and it's a prayer uh, that this passage leads us to. If this was not COVID times, I would have us holding hands, linking arms, Um, but the introverts in the room are very happy that this is COVID. So we're going to read this out loud together as our prayer as a congregation. So let's read it together. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you we are a part of your family together. We thank you for this church and for our fellowship. We thank You for Your faithfulness and love. We pray for each other now. May we find joy in each other. May we find gospel partnership in each other. May we carry each other in our hearts and share God's grace with each other. May we be quick to love and slow to judge. May we know the affection of Jesus Christ and His joy for one another. And through this all, may we grow together being confident that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Father, we just come before you now, grateful for this type of church that you're building amongst us, an alternative society that prays in new ways. Father, we don't just look at the church in Philippi as a divided church, we recognize so often the enemy gets into our churches today, gets into this church, creates division and disunity, and Lord, that breaks our hearts. And Father, we recognize that that doesn't just happen here, but it also happens in the wider spheres of our lives with relationships and families and colleagues. And I wanna just take a moment as we respond now in ministry to let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Perhaps there's some relationships in your lives, perhaps there's some things that you've got a commitment issue towards. Maybe you're looking for the next great thing and the Holy Spirit's saying, I started that. And it might not guarantee that it'll be easy, but it is good and it will be completed in you. And so some of you, maybe it's the Holy Spirit just promptly um, and and soberly just tugging on your heart today to reestablish your commitment to what He's called you to. Perhaps there's some of you in this room where you know that there's brokenness between you and others. Maybe that's the brokenness that you've created and sustained, or maybe it's been created and sustained towards you. If it's happened towards you, I wanna encourage you to maybe pray a new way as you go forward, to pray that prayer of thankfulness and blessing for that person. It's not gonna be easy for you, but it is an invitation to open the door inwards, allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you in that as you spiritually and supernaturally walk in the opposite spirit. And if you're the one that's perhaps caused that pain or that division outwardly, then today's a chance just to come and ask the Holy Spirit to minister to you too. Just to bring your heart before him and ask him to forgive you. Ask him to show how you can make reconciliation for that person, what it might be that you're being called to do by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, in the weeks and the months ahead. Lord, however you need us to respond this morning, would you come by your Holy Spirit?